Aberdeen Standard Investments, proud sponsors of CityWire Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the CityWire Selector podcast. I'm Jessica Beard, international reporter. For this episode, I spoke to David Coombs at Rathbone, who's head of multi-asset investments. He told me why the focus on three-year performance is really flawed. We also discussed why he thinks that it's key to have a single manager on a fund as opposed to co-portfolio managers, but at the same time, why the cult of star manager is really hugely troublesome. Have a listen. I think you'll find it interesting. Hello. Hi. Thank you for being here today. No problem. Um, So as a multi-asset manager, you invest both directly and into funds selectively. Is that right? That's correct, yes. So you must get an inside view on on the qualities that you need in both roles. What what would you say those are and how do they differ? I mean, it's interesting. We tend to use funds really for um, quite sort of specific specialist areas rather than core mainstream asset classes. Um, and, that, and that's largely because the way that we look at the equity market, for example, um, we don't want to, be, to carry sort of uh, factor risks such as sector rotation that's often at the whim of markets and fashion and hype. So we tend to run quite a neutral um, sort of global sector uh, position, technology, financials, the very high level eight, eight global sectors. So sometimes we'll use active or passive funds if we're underway to sector we don't wish to be and there's no individual direct investment that we want to make that up. So what kind of areas are those at the moment? So we own biotech, um, technology, where we felt some of the sort of the large cap tech stocks were slightly expensive, but also sometimes that can be a geographic area such as Japan. Um, we don't have any Japanese stocks that, that are coming through our, our process that we want to hold directly at the moment, but we were very keen to get an exposure to, to the Japanese economy as China was growing on its doorstep, and we were particularly interested in, in, in the growth sectors in Japan, technology, etc. So we, we, we own a couple of funds covering Japan in the growth space, such as JP Morgan and, and Coupel and Cardiff. So um, our approach is to invest directly where we can, um, but as I say, it's, we will use uh, funds to express more of a, an asset class, subclass view, or as, a, as, or as to reduce overall portfolio construction risk. Okay, and where, where do you invest actively and passively in those funds at the moment? Um, I mean, we, we have a bias to active because you know, um, we, our approach is long-term and I, I passionately believe that active is the way to invest on a long-term basis. We do use some passive. We own some FTSE 100 uh, I, uh, ETFs at the moment. That's that's as we manage the Brexit risk. So we want to be long the FTSE 100, but we want to be short UK GDP, and a FTSE ETF is quite a good way of expressing that. So that's a good example of a short-term risk mitigator uh, where we use passive. But typically, we'd rather have active if it's a more of a long-term strategic call. Okay. Um, and so as an investor that, that goes into direct invest directly but also into these funds, what is it that you you look for in a fund manager knowing knowing what it's like to invest directly? 
Yeah, it, 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 again, um, as I moved, I mean, throughout my career, I've either invested directly, then I went to multi-management, and I'm back to investing directly again. And I find myself, yes, yeah, sometimes I can be meeting with the CEO of you know, Vodafone and you know, meeting Nick Windling from JP Morgan Japan the next day. <clears throat> and actually, the approach isn't that different, which surprises some people. I mean, if you take a step back and think what, what we're doing, as fund, what I'm doing as a fund manager, I'm taking my investors' capital and investing it on their behalf to generate the best return I can for the risk, okay? So if you think about that, what I'm doing is they're trusting me with their capital. It's up to me then to take that capital and place it with either a CEO of Vodafone or Coca-Cola or whatever it may be, or giving it to a fund manager. In both cases, I'm dealing with people, forget passive for a second, if it's an active fund. I'm, I am then outsourcing that capital to a third party. It's a CEO or it's a fund manager. So in terms of the first criteria I'm looking for, I'm looking for the right kind of people. Do I trust the person or people on the opposite side of the desk? And that's no different. So I tend to look at fund managers being kind of CEO of holding companies. And this is one of the reasons where I have a passionate dislike of investing in funds run by committees or by groups or co-managers, lots and lots of sort of equal um, co-managers who have you know, an equal vote. Because ultimately, you don't run companies that way. Companies have a CEO, they have management teams, but ultimately one person is responsible and accountable for the risk that that company takes, how they allocate the capital, and if they're a multi-division company, that, you know, that the management team are making capital allocations across all those divisions, as some expand and some contract and whatever. A fund manager is also allocating capital across the stocks in their portfolio adding to those that they think are going to grow more than others, i.e. taking a higher conviction bet than some than others. The CEO is doing exactly the same thing. You know, if you're Unilever, you're allocating capital to different brands, different divisions. You're going to allocate more capital to those that you think are going to grow more, less to those that are growing more slowly, and you might even withdraw capital from those divisions that you think are in long-term decline. So actually, those decisions are quite similar. Yeah, of course, it's a really interesting way of looking at it. Uh, particularly what you said about there being one lead manager, mm. one decision maker. Um, so would that, would that sort of ring alarm bells if you're in a meeting with, with multiple fund managers? Who yeah, I, I, mean, I, I feel that, you know, um, ultimately the buck stops with one person. You know, I think when people, again, are trusting us with, 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 with their money, they want to know who's accountable, who, who they blame. You know, you tend not to get lots of euphoria and people congratulating you. So it tends to be who's to blame. But also, you want to feel that one person is backing their conviction that's, that's do responsible. Not, do you not have a key man risk there, though? Of course you do. And but is that not a problem? Of course it is. <laughs> but, we, but again, as an industry, we constantly try and play this down. Because I mean, I've sat in front of analysts looking at my funds and saying, oh, there's key man risk. Well, yeah. That's what you're buying, right? You, you, know, you don't go to, to Tesla or Microsoft or Apple pre, you know, the days of Steve Jobs. Well, I'm not investing in these companies because key man risk. You invest in those companies because those people were good at what they do. And you hope they were surrounded by good management teams that maybe challenged them from doing things um, that were wrong or where people got carried away or whatever. You need, you know, if you've got strong personalities and strong leads, you've got to have a management team of people who bring different skills to that party. And that's really important that you've got challenge, that there's respect for the management team, not of 
you don't have a, a leader who just you know drives straight across and ignores the management team or, or where the management team are kind of clones of the leader that's not healthy and part of the skill whether you know working with the management team looking at the c-suite you know is the cfo a good counteracting balance to the ceo for example or, or head of ops or whatever it might be depending on how the company's set up same with a fund group you know who's challenging the fund manager it might be another fund manager a junior in the team or a team of assistant managers or it could be the risk team or whatever but ultimately I believe in, in, in the power of that, of that leader and yeah that brings key man risk but if you're investing in a fund and the key man goes and you, you're not happy with the succession plan you take your money elsewhere if you're not happy with you know the replacement for Steve Jobs at Apple you sell Apple and you buy Microsoft. Yeah because you get a lot of this star manager culture yeah. and um, and often if they, if they change jobs and move off a of fund, is that something that would then make you reconsider your investment? So I think the cult of star manager is, is hugely troublesome, to be honest. Um, and I, don't, I really don't like the phrase. And we've seen many, many occasions where a star manager um, moves to a different shop and people follow them because of this cult of the manager. And I go back to my earlier point. Even, uh, let's call them, I prefer to call them the lead manager, the key decision taker, let's put it in those, those terms. They are, and I include myself in this, I'm, I'm definitely not a star manager, let me just be very clear. But, you know, I'm very reliant on Will McIntosh White, who, who's my assistant manager. You know, he brings a lot to the table and helps influence my decisions. So although I'm accountable for every decision, I'm not responsible for all the ideas. Okay, and he challenges me a lot, and that's massively important. He's a very different personality to me. If I left on my own to another fund and some people just followed me, that would be a mistake, mm. because we're very much a team. And his challenge to me is a massive, massively important. And I think people forget that sometimes. So it's not just your team around you, but it's the infrastructure around you. It's your responsibilities. You know, fund managers who go from working for a large, mega size asset management company to a boutique or to their own shop for example you know that manager is then taking on a huge amount of different types of responsibilities they have less infrastructure around them different teams around them it's it's a it, i think it's very very simplistic to say oh they can replicate that have there been times where you have followed a manager so uh I mean, I don't do much fund investing these days, so I can't think of anything in, in the immediate uh, past. Um, uh, in, in going straight around, not, not that often. I've always felt that you need to understand why they've gone and, and where they've gone to and whether they can replicate that. And people too, are too, as I say, willing to think they can totally replicate. So. So no, I've never been a big star manager. I've always been more interested in small boutiques and startups anyway, because I think you get more alpha from those. Mm -hmm. and, and the problem with star managers as well in the UK particularly is that they have a massive distribution handicap because those star managers attract so much capital, they often attract more than they can cope with and manage effectively given liquidity in the, in the asset class. But then a lot of these boutiques are set up by those once star managers who, who go and create their own flagship fund um, not necessarily. I mean, they're the ones that get a lot of the press coverage yeah. because they, they're star managers and, and, and they have good PR. But there's lots of boutiques and under-the-radar companies, and certainly when I was a multi-manager sort of over three years ago now, we often were trading in funds where the management were not even in the UK and they just had 
some CCAVs for institutional clients that we then got them to convert to, to retail to allow us in. Groups that were, were not really heard of in the UK retail space, like Michinori, uh, for example, uh, which is still probably not that well known, which I own, own in my funds right now. Um, so there are lots of boutiques out there. And my definition of boutique is not, say, a Woodford Asset Management or, or a Crux. We've got star managers. My idea of a boutique is, a com is probably a fund group that's always been a boutique and has just been, you know, Slater, for example, who started off small um, and, and is still a boutique and still trying to run money in the same way. So a star manager going to their own shop, I'm not sure that's a boutique. Well, it's certainly not my definition of one. Okay. Um, and just going back to, to your direct investments, mm. are there any areas where, where you, would, you would never invest directly or you don't feel like you've, you've got these? Yeah. Um, so in terms of, you know, as any group, we, we've got uh, a team of, uh, with um, specialisms and I have analytical resources within the group. Uh, and also, you know, we have uh, sell-side analysts that we use as well in certain areas. But yes, for example, I would never invest directly in mid or small cap biotech, for example. You know, we own Biotech Growth Trust instead, because not only is that a specialism from a fund management perspective, but also the scientific knowledge that you need to have to really understand those companies. Um, and then you need to understand not just the science, the, the commercial application and the regulatory processes that, that those companies have to go to, which are constantly changing as we move away from you know, mass market drugs into more personalized and, uh, drugs and, and, and looking at more niche diseases, etc. So that area of specialism is not just for management, it's much, much, much more technical than that. So there's no way, for example, I go out and buy two or three sort of mid-cap biotech names with one, with one or two products. So moment there's a lot of popularity around thematic funds yes um, and just mega trends in general yes does does that also apply then to, to these mega trends do you need do you need more expertise in those so um, I'm very nervous about thematic investing okay why so because I don't think it exists um, I mean I think it's a marketing term is what I mean because um, every investment is a th has a theme um, and I think a lot of the time when I see these strategies I just see mega cap stocks just stuck into themes because it looks quite sexy. Um, and mega trends, um, I think that's more interesting. Um, I wouldn't probably call them mega trends, but in terms of what are the structural trends driving economies and stock markets, yes, I think that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't call them themes. So let's take, for example... Why wouldn't you call them themes? Because I think themes is just an overused term, like hedge fund. It, it, it's lost its meaning. Okay. I think it's been so... It's been so overused over the last 20, 30 years by thematic funds where they're tech. It's a sector fund, is it thematic? When's a theme not a sector, whatever? Yeah. You know, water, you know, all this sort of stuff. Um, you, know, you find Volkswagen in robotics theme because it uses robots. I mean, it just becomes fatuous, to be honest. So if I look at, at, at longer term structural trends, whether it's, you know, demo, uh, through um, the move from baby boomers to consumerism being uh, driven by millennials and Generation Z, then that's, that's a long-term structural change in consumer behavior. Mega trend, if you want to call it that. That's important. That has a massive impact on how companies sell their products, the mar their, their channels to market, how they advertise. 
Um, also, the influence of politics is a huge trend right now in terms of you went through 25 years, probably from early 80s to two or three years ago, where most political parties in the West were very much hands-off and let markets dictate. And what we've seen in the last couple of years, often referred to as popularism, but it's, I think that's again a bit of a lazy description, what we're really seeing is a, is a, is a, a move towards polit pol politicians and political parties that are much more willing to intervene in, 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 in open markets and therefore have a much more instinctive um, call to intervene in markets, whether that's price capping, whether it's protecting investors, uh, sorry, not investors, protecting, well, investors are consumers, in protecting consumers, then, you know, that's a big trend that's going on. But then surely with that one, with politics, it's something that, that will make you reconsider all your investments. Correct. Um, rather than being a, a basket of investments that you're going to make to fit that specific idea. And that's exactly my point. It's not about thematics. But in that case, can you compare demographics to politics? Because that's one that you could quite easily, you know, with, the, with millennials and, and the new consumer trends, put into a basket of stocks and create a fund out of? You, you absolutely could, um, if you wish to do that. I personally don't see that as something that's of interest to me. Um, I think for those who are DIY investors who want to ha have an interest in those, in those themes or, or trends, Absolutely, There's no, there is a place for those products, absolutely right, um, for the retail market. So why, so why the no interest then? Because I'd rather be more precise in the way that I invest in those themes. So for example, let's take, let's take one. So one, I, I talked about Generation Z and Millennials, and one of the sort of trends that we saw and, and continue to grow the last couple of years is, is this move towards e-gaming and e-sports and how that was impacting on old media and, old, and, and sports rights, for example, in, in the mainstream. And we invested in a, in a number of companies in, in that area as a beneficiary of that trend. But rather than buy a, you know, a, a fund with lots of companies involved in that industry, but with dilution because only 30% of their earnings may be linked to that, mm -hmm. I'd rather buy companies where 80 to 100% of their earnings are related to that, so you can be much more precise, but fewer exactly, and and that gives you more precise exposure to that trend, rather than buying an ETF or a fund with 40 or 50 holdings, where the tail of 30 are companies, as I said, with 20, 30, or 40 percent exposure. I mean that that must surely be the case even more so with passive funds. Correct. Than active. Smart Beta, for example, really struggles sometimes when it's looking for the you know to get the last 15 stocks in there to make it use its compatible or whatever. Yeah. So. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. All I'm saying is from my perspective, it's imprecise. And, and um, I'd rather invest in, in the companies that I think are going to be the winners of that trend, not just because they're in the trend. There's a big difference. Mm. You know, this company you know, uh, is involved with, in the water industry. Let's buy it rather than this is a company that's actually using that trend to, 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 to generate um, high returns and equity. Yeah. Okay. Um, earlier this month, you gave an interview um, which said, speaking about passives and ETFs, mm. so you said investors who allocate their money to ETFs for the long term aren't making the best potential use of their capital. Yeah. So why is that? So let me, let me give you an example. Let's say you went 
door to door knocking on people's doors and said, um, and, you, and you knocked on the door and said, look, um, I can give you, you're, you're investing your money and you say, um, yeah, a lot of active managers have underperformed. You've got to pay quite high fees. If I could give you an investment that tracked the performance of the UK stock market, do you think that would be a better bet? And the answer would probably be yes. You know, for managers with a bad name, and you know, there's a lot of press around overcharging and this and the other, and they're underperforming. The answer would be yes. If I come back to you the following week and say, and knock on your door and say, look, um, over the next 10 years, you can invest in this, in this product where you get the worst performing 50 companies. Those run, some of them run by people and individuals that you wouldn't trust. Or would you rather invest in a fund that just invests in the top 50 companies, which has the highest return equity, the highest level of capital discipline, the best management, and the most trustworthy individuals? Well, simple answer. Yeah. So you've answered yes to the complete, to the same product, a FTSE 100 tracker, but depending on the question and your time horizon. Yeah. So. My point is, for short term, passive is a very useful tool to help you mitigate risk, get exposure to markets. If your preferred investments might be a bit expensive, and you, but you still want equity exposure, the markets have fallen. You just you so think tactical. Yeah, so you think you think everything's going to drift up by passive. But if you're investing for on a, a much longer time horizon for your savings, surely every pound you invest, you want to maximise the return on that by Giving that money to people you trust will turn it into a greater return. Rule of thumb, you, know, you should not invest in any equity that produces an annualized return below 10%. Mm. Um, and you should try and identify those. And it's not as hard as you think over a longer term. Yes, over six months or 12 months versus the market, almost impossible. And unfortunately, the active industry tries to sell itself on constantly outperforming. Well, that's tough. And what happens is you bring your tracking error down to mitigate the risk. What I'm saying, true active management is taking much greater risk versus benchmarks with a longer term time horizon, then you've got a much better chance of outperforming. So the industry needs to rethink what it means by active management. You know, three-year track records is too short. We need to, we need to lengthen how we think so about So would you not policy. consider a manager if they only had three-year track record? Oh, I've, I've considered a manager with only a three-month track record. Okay, but, but it's not Because it's about, it's really about the skill set of the manager, about the structure of the fund, of the team around them. You know, this constant focus on three-year past performance is hugely flawed. Often, a fund performs much better in its first three years. Why? Because the manager is totally incentivized to get the best performance over three years, because he or she knows everyone's going to look at their three-year track record. Yeah. So, in the one, so a fund in its first three years, when it's at its smallest, the most nimble, where the manager can show its highest, his or her highest conviction, has a much higher probability of, of outperforming than a fund with a, with a, with a sort of three-year track record that's suddenly grown to beyond its level of natural capacity, mm. but everyone suddenly buys it because it's top quarter over three years, because every person looking at three-year quants gets the same answer, right? So, so which way of the scale does that push you? Does it mean that you want to look at them sooner because you want to capture mm. the, the returns that they can make within yeah. the first three years? Or does it make you say, hang on, let's see how they do after the three years? And no, I, I would always try and get in early. Okay. That's higher risk, yeah. right? Because you haven't got that comfort. You know, again, I come to you and say, do you know what, Mr. Client? Um, 
I'm, I'm great at picking funds. All the funds I've picked for your portfolio are top quartile over the last three years. And you as the client will go, that's fantastic. I've just missed out on three years of outperformance. <laughs> yeah. Right? Clients are getting more sophisticated with DIY techniques. They, they, they can see the performance numbers in the papers, etc. The skill that we can bring is looking at talent that have been maybe outside the retail arena or, or have moved around from other shops, they've been assistants somewhere else, who launch new products and getting in early, where often the fees are lower because you're in early, the manager is massively incentivized to make a name for themselves, um, then that's adding value. That's, that's where you bring your skill to, and, and analysis and which can give you an edge over your competitors. So are there any that you're looking at at the moment, any up-and-coming managers? Um, not particularly because um, we don't hold that many funds, yeah. as I said earlier. And also, you know, when I buy a fund, I, I'm looking at a five to seven year holding period. Mm -hmm. So I'm not looking to funds um, to, to sell them particularly. I don't sell funds at the end of a form of a one year or two years because I believe you need to give them at least five years to generate alpha. So Michinori is one I've, I've, I've talked about. You know, not many people would know that fund, not many people hold it. I, I think I was a day one investor in that fund five or six years ago. I'm still an investor. I'm still probably one of the dominant investors in that fund. So there's no need to sell it. I typically sell a fund where one I've bought early on suddenly gets huge um, uh, asset growth where I feel it's grown beyond that manager's alpha generation capability. And that happens all the time. So typically when a fund gets big, I sell it. Yeah. That yeah. tends to be the biggest sell discipline for me with a fund. Okay, and uh, that applies to whichever region or asset class? Yeah, every fund has its own, its own natural capacity. limits of capacity, yeah. right? Yeah. So a US core, I mean, I don't own any US core equity funds, but if I did, then clearly you've got a massive capacity potential because the US market's so deep and liquid. Yeah. Um, UK equity is a much smaller capacity, natural capacity, in my opinion. Europe even smaller again. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not going to invest in a European equity fund that has 10 billion in it, for example. How often do you think um, fund managers or asset man the asset management companies let the funds go above their capacities? Um, probably most of the time. Okay. And is that a real problem, a recurring issue you see? It's got worse. Uh, it's got worse because of the centralization of buying, or as we've seen. The people making the buying decisions in the marketplace in the UK has narrowed significantly post-RDR. Mm. Um, and distribution in the UK has become narrower, with less platforms, and, 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 and as I say, we've seen the growth of gatekeepers and panels, so you've had a much greater centralization. And, that has, and, and that's created herding of buying, plus the, you know, the big growth in MPS platforms as well. Um, so we've got a big herding instinct around, around buying. They're all looking at th the same stats, either on Trustnet or Morningstar. Three year, almost everyone's looking at three years, I mentioned earlier. Everyone keeps telling me they've got this great quant screen. By and large, they're all the same. So everyone's getting the same data, making the same decisions. Um, and that's unhealthy because, you're, as I said, you're seeing funds grow too fast. The fund groups then build the infrastructure around that. They then can't let those funds fall, so they bring the risk down. The managers have less of a universe because they can't buy the same investments that when the fund was smaller and nimble, so the track record starts to wane. And I've seen that so many times over the last 20, 25 years, but I would say it's, 
as we see consolidation in industry and costs obviously rising and, and prices coming down, this is one of the unfortunately unintended consequences, I'm afraid, that we could see this continue to happen and get worse rather than before it gets better. But to be optimistic for a second, I do think this creates a huge opportunity for boutiques mm -hmm. and for boutiques to set their stall out and say, do you know what? We're going to be capacity constrained and we're going to stick to it, whereas a lot of people don't. You know, how many times a manager says to me, oh, the most we can manage is two billion, and they get to three billion, they go, ah, yeah, but the circumstances have changed. Mm, yeah, okay. If you're very strict on your capacity management, then you should be able to justify a higher fee. Um, and I think boutiques that don't build out huge cost bases um, will have an advantage if they stick to that model. Um, so I suspect we might see the full circle again where the we, we, the, the, you get the big mega houses have got their place and we start to see more and more boutiques set up again where it's been quite difficult more recently because of that explosion in regulatory costs. So you'll see really extremes in that case. And what's going to happen to the, the mid-sized? Go passive, probably. Yeah. So I, if I look at, you know, from, from my point of view, of, of if I was buying funds, I was saying, look, you've got the boutique end where, and boutique will be bigger than it was in the past because of the, the cost issue I talked about, your fixed costs. But you should be able to be a boutique, manage your capacity, charge a higher fee. You have your big asset managers that will probably charge lower, but they're going to have lower tracking errors just because they're capacity constrained. And they're all buying passives, by the way, as we know, yeah. for obvious reasons to keep that revenue up. And I think in the middle is going to be quite difficult because how you're going to get price pressure, cost pressure, and how do you manage your capacity when you're in the middle? And that's going to be the challenge for those mid-market groups, I suspect. Do they go towards the boutique side and, ma and, and limit capacity, or do they try and take on the big boys? And that's going to be the, the tough strategic decisions that will need to be made. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. To hear more of the CityWire Selected podcast, tune in again for the latest show. Go to citywireselected.com forward slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at CW Selector to stay up to date with all the latest fund industry news. Aberdeen Standard Investments, proud sponsors of CityWire Podcasts.